Oftentimes, it's better to start with creativity to help you learn the facts. Life is too short to learn a, a list of a thousand rando words. From the campus of Stanford University, this is Schools In with your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, senior lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford, and I'm with my co-host, Dan Schwartz. Dean of the Graduate School of Education. I should let you know that since we are taping during COVID-19, I'm taping from my house, Dan is taping from his house, and our guest will also be taping via Zoom. Dr. Denise, how to make a hard decision, and boy, we got to make a lot of hard decisions now, Pope. Do, yes. do you notice they're getting longer and longer? <laughs> my, my titles? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> my titles are getting longer. Yeah, we, we have a lot of hard decisions to make on a daily basis now because of COVID-19. Right. And, and so the challenge is, can, can I make these in any principled way? Right. Or, or am I just situational? And uh, where, where I'm just responding to the situation and, and going with what, you know, maybe the first idea or the most self-interested idea. So this is hard. I, I want to talk about a study I did with sixth graders. So we, we were going in to teach them design thinking. And uh, so what we did is we, we had them do design activities in math, science, social studies. Uh, and, and we'd give them a task and they would have to design some solution, right? And, and we were trying to see, could we change their dispositions and so forth? But the, the one I want to talk about is social studies because I came up with a lesson that I thought was perfect for sixth graders. Their, their task was to come up with a fair method for making decisions, right? And so what I did is I, I said to them, imagine you have a scenario where the girls wanna put up a poster in their locker room. Should they be allowed to do this? And, and so, you know, they would each say they should or shouldn't. And I say, no, 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 but we're not actually deciding that. We're deciding how we're going to make the decision. And you could see the brain smoking a little bit because this was very hard. And I sort of say, so should the teacher make the decision? And, or should we vote, right? And what would happen is the students would end up always saying, no, I think they should have the poster because it's fair as long as the boys get one too. So it was very hard to get them to look towards a process to make this decision. And, and so it was a lot of fun. I could just see them switching between I, this is the answer versus the process by which we get the answer. So I think this is very hard. I think sixth graders are not the only ones. Uh, in my first philosophy course in college was an ethics course. Uh, I didn't do very well. This was an <laughs> ethics. Well, it was also an ethics course where the school I went to decided we don't give grades in the first year because that, that'll free you up. So this basically freed up the ethics professor to be a sadist. Oh, <laughs> that's not good. That's, but of all you know, people to be a sadist, you would not think an ethics professor right, would be a sadist. Which is why I'm just generally dubious about the whole ethics endeavor now. Oh, no, that doesn't <laughs> bode well for our guest today, Dan. Uh, he's gonna, Rob, Rob's going to straighten me out. So, <laughs> so it's okay. Anyway, uh, I think it's very hard for people to develop a process by which you make very hard decisions and you might come up with a decision that you wouldn't have chosen initially. Yeah, well, and there's also, I'll give you my little, my little spiel on decision-making, which ha has worked for me sometimes. Uh, so I, I go to the science, and I know that the science is hard now because it's really up in the air, and when things contradict, it's very problematic. But um, a long time ago, I was told, make a decision, and then see how you feel about that decision. Did your heart sink 
after you made that decision or did you kind of feel good about it? And that's a little bit of a gut check. You don't solely rely on that. You do everything you can to make a good decision, but then you see sort so, of how you feel after so, that. So your first principle for making ethical decisions is remorse? <laughs> did, no, did well, I, it's, it's the Jewish guilt coming through. Can you tell? No, I, <laughs> but I think, but that idea, of, you know, like when you, we, we did this with my kids when they were choosing between, you know, what college to attend or something. It's like, they can't decide, I can't decide. Okay, like make a big list of pros, make a big list of cons, weigh out all the options and then make the decision and see that, how that, you feel. That never works because as soon as one starts to win you start adding pluses to the other one so you, well, you keep them close i think you i actually think you you make your column bigger whichever way you're sort of wanting it to go Very so good. maybe maybe uh, maybe there isn't really a process so, maybe you're just making up a process around like the girls want the the, the poster in the locker room and yeah, let's yeah. make the process fit the fit the end right so that that's the that's the challenge Right, is that's that, the uh, challenge that, that I've already made up my mind, and now I'm going to make a process that justifies my decision. So let's bring in our guest who will help us uh, figure this out and tell us how we all should really be making decisions, particularly in such a difficult time right now. So uh, I'm oh Dan, no, I can't wait. I'm just I've got I've got decision after decision about schools and Black <laughs> Lives Matters and COVID, and I'm just going to keep throw, lobbing them over at Rob oh, and letting him hit it out of the park. This is now not only have you potentially insulted him about saying all ethics professors are sadists. No, you didn't I did say not that. say that. You didn't say that. You didn't say that. But you've also scared him given all the stuff we want to talk about. All right, let's let's bring him in. Uh, I am very excited to welcome Rob Reich, a professor of political science at Stanford. He is uh, the head of Stanford's McCoy Center for Ethics and Society, and he is the associate director of the Human Centered Artificial Intelligence Initiative. He's got another book coming out later this year called Digital Technology and democratic theory, just a really smart person focusing on ethics, public policy, and technology here at Stanford. Welcome, Rob. Thanks. Welcome. It's so great to be here. Thank you. So, uh, Rob, do you have a go-to way that you teach people to make decisions? Is that what people who study ethics do? And, and could you put it on like a little business card so I could carry it around <laughs> with me? So. Yeah, uh, uh, that's the temptation is that people always want a little note card, a kind of moral compass that they can stick in their back pocket and, you know, consult whenever necessary. Um, it, I, yeah, I, I, sometimes thinking about ethics is a matter of right and wrong or what we are obligated to do or what we are obligated not to do. But more interestingly and more often, ethics is a matter of better and worse and that can change in different circumstances. So it's not quite contextual. It's not quite just a matter of the heart and how you feel, um, but it requires a set of frameworks for thinking through a whole bunch of questions that can be different in different times and in different places. And that's where I think the most interesting ethical questions are. Um, let me give you one example from home here at Stanford. So I'm, you mentioned, Denise, I'm teaching and writing these days about ethics and technology. And sometimes you'll hear people say, you know, like, engineers need a course on ethics to make sure that they don't do bad things. And um, that's fine, but I often think that that's not an especially interesting task at the university to have the ethics professor come in and be the kind of, you know, policeman or cop uh, for the bad behavior of technologists. Um, when you read about Elizabeth Holmes, who's the Stanford dropout who went and created the company Theranos, which, you know, now is under investigation and she's under criminal charges. Uh, 
you don't need any advanced education and ethics to know that you shouldn't lie, cheat, and steal um, your way to success in the world. And we all learned that in kindergarten. It means people do it sometimes, but at college, we shouldn't be wasting our time, in my view, with ideas about lying, cheating, and stealing. The more interesting questions are about what's better and worse when we have value trade-offs. And in the world of COVID, in the world of deciding what to do with our kids and education, we face competing values and trade-offs. That's where the interesting stuff is. So what, what does a framework look like? Denise, you, you mentioned a framework. Is this like a decision tree or it's a, a matrix? What, what is a, a framework? Or Rob, what, what's a framework? Is there a generic framework that I can... Well, Denise already, Denise already mentioned one, the idea of kind of making a ledger of the pluses and the minuses of how to make a decision. And, you know, as you were talking about this, Denise, I don't know if you guys know that um, Charles Darwin, um, when he was deciding whether or not he should get married, um, he made exactly what you described, Denise, a ledger of the pluses and minuses <laughs> about whether he should get married or not. So I just want to read you a little bit of this, partly for the amusement and then partly to think through with you whether this is the best approach or best framework to decision-making. Okay. So here's what Darwin wrote when he couldn't decide what to do. Under the column, don't get married, he listed, freedom to go wherever I like, choice of society or little of it, conversation with clever men at clubs, um, can't read in the evenings, fatness and idleness with the woman, anxiety and responsibility, I'll have less money for books. <laughs> Did he have anything in the positive? <laughs> yes. So, so here, here are the things about why he should get married. Children, constant companion, home and someone to take care of the home. Imagine living all one's day solitary in smoky and dirty London. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you no one's going to marry him if they saw that left side of the list about the fat, lazy. No, uh-uh. I say no. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, that, that gets at uh, one approach is a kind of moral algebra. You know, we, we put together a bunch of things in two different columns. We weigh the costs and benefits of each and we see, you know, numerically, ideally, if we can assign a greater value to one side rather than another, then that tells us what to do. But there are other ways of making decisions um, as well beyond the kind of cost benefit analysis. This is School's In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We are talking with Rob Reich from Stanford, studying ethics, public policy, and about to tell us some of the other ways we can make decisions. If, if the Darwin Ledger example doesn't do it for you. Yeah. Rob? So, so I, I, I have a story on this. So uh, when I was in graduate school, one of my professors was one of the leaders in utility theory. Yeah. So this is the algebra. Right? This is You're the trying algebra. to figure out where, where you get the biggest payoff. And he was deciding whether to cut down this big tree in the front yard. And he, he considered everything. He worked out and he cut down the tree, at which point his wife divorced him because oh. <laughs> he hadn't included that in his algebra. Yeah, ah. yeah exactly. So if you're not going to make a ledger of pros and cons and you're not going to just do a gut check, what are some other ways to do this, Rob? Yeah, well, another way to approach this is, is to think through about um, – certain things that we're just prevented from doing or obligated to do independent of the consequences, or perhaps sometimes because of the consequences and that they're always uniformly bad. So 
Um, let's take as an example here, um, um, smoking. Should I be a smoker or not? Um, in classic utilitarian form, one way to think about this is that, well, uh, it's my life and if I want to do something that I think um, um, is good for me, but is actually understood to be bad for my health, no one should argue about that um, with me. That's my decision to make. And we only get then social regulations or prohibitions on smoking when we have evidence to show that it harms other people, secondhand smoke, or the problem of seatbelts in cars. You know, sure, you can drive uh, with, you know, without a seatbelt, but since um, getting injured in a car crash imposes costs on other people, then we might regulate whether people drive in cars without seatbelts. And the idea here is that you can do all kinds of things to yourself, um, but if you impose a harm on other people, there might be a big block against doing that, even if you could point to that would flow from that for yourself. And, hey, and that's another way of thinking about some of these questions. Hang on, Rob, you cut out. So could you say just that last part again about even if you could point to? Even if you could point to benefits for yourself or possibly even benefits for, for other people, if there's a, a big harm imposed on others, that could block your, your freedom or your liberty to do something. So I'd, well, that, I'd, like, I'd like to think with examples. So yeah. right now, uh, I get parents who ask me whether they should put their children in pods. Yeah. And the, the idea of the pod is uh, four, four families might have their children in a pod, and then they would hire a tutor. And, and so this sounds great, but they also worry about the fact that other people who have lesser means may not be able to uh, have pods because they can't, they can't get the tutor. Uh, maybe they can't rotate the kids through the houses. So help me think about this one. Yeah, I mean, this is a classic example of competing values. And, you know, Dan, you started off by saying, you know, visiting with sixth graders, trying to understand how to make a fair decision. And one of the ways education for me is so interesting as a way of thinking through these, these moral questions is because we, of course, want as educators to create a fair system of education. We want um, equal opportunity for kids to learn. And the concern in this pod arrangements is that only well-to-do parents will be able to afford such arrangements. And that will provide systematic advantages to the wealthy as opposed to those who can't afford pods. But on the other hand, um, it's parents making decisions about their kids. And fairness considerations come in, but the definition of parenting is preferring your own child. There's no such thing as being a parent and saying, I care equally about all children in my parenting decisions. Um, parenting is about being partial. Fairness is about being impartial. So what the heck do we do as a parent then? We're torn between our obligations to a larger group and to try to be fair and our obligations to our own kids where we try to be partial to them and help them. Hard question. Yes. This is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We are talking with Rob Reese, who's a professor of ethics at Stanford, answering this very hard question, lots of hard questions in COVID-19. So the first thing you said about smoking reminded me of the mask issue. And so it seems clear to me, like, you should wear a mask because you're going to hurt other people, um, potentially, if you uh, don't even realize that you have uh, COVID-19 and you're not wearing a mask. So that one seems kind of like 
okay, everyone should wear a mask. Now, this next one about parents deciding what to do with their kids, as you said, is really, really difficult. And you would never say to a parent, put your own kids' health and wellness secondary, right? But there's not a good answer here where a lot of kids don't suffer. So how do we, what do we, what do we do? Can't the rich parent just say, and I'll give $50,000 to the school. Would would that clear their conscience? That's a very rich parent. (laughs) What about a normal everyday parent, Dan, who doesn't have (laughs) $50,000? From each according to their means. Yeah, I mean, the reason these, these pod arrangements occasion such, you know, consternation and concern is because it, 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 I don't think this is just a kind of one-off example of this tension, but it's just the extension of it into the pandemic circumstances that have all, all, it's always been present. Should I send my kid to the private prep school where I'm confident they'll get a better education than if I send them to the public school? Well, only the well-to-do parents have the option to do that unless you have massive scholarships available. And that goes all the way back to the earliest stages of being a parent. Should I like, you know, do Mozart music in the womb in order to boost the cognitive capacity of my as yet unborn child? Should I read my kid 10 bedtime stories at night rather than one or none? All of these decisions as parents confer some advantage on on our kids over others. And the pod pandemic classroom in the backyard is just the latest example of that. So here's what I would have to say. I'm I'm admiring the problem and I'm not giving you any answers to it. I have noticed that. Yeah. Um, If you want to begin to think through some answers, I think we have to begin thinking about how to balance the idea of parenting as nothing more than the task of advantaging our child, as opposed to attempting to steward their own interests as individuals. I think we live in a society today in which we often allow parents to think the thought that the task of parenting is giving your kid advantages. I think that is a big and profound social mistake. The task of parenting involves loving your child for the individual they are and developing their capacities and talents, but not trying to give them systematic advantages over other kids. And wealthy parents can enlist with their money all kinds of extra resources to advantage them. So here's the answer. When the parent who wants to do the pod says, I think my own kids are going to suffer in irreparable ways in pandemic experiences if I don't give them a decent learning opportunity. I can imagine that being an admirable motivation for saying, for this moment and this moment alone, I need to give them enough so that they don't suffer um, in a pandemic pod. But if they say, by contrast, I'm worried about my kids staying ahead of the rest of the pack. And if they lose six months of schooling by not being in school in person, that's a price too high for me to pay. And I have to continue to advantage them by giving them the, you know, Aristotle in the backyard during the pandemic. Um, That's an unworthy reason for being a pandemic pod homeschooler. This is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We will have more with Rob Reich on the ethics of COVID-19 decisions next on SiriusXM. You're listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. So it is hard to predict what the future will be. The focus is really on academics. From the campus of Stanford University. Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with Rob Reese, who's a professor of ethics here at Stanford, about really sticky, tricky COVID 
19 decisions, uh, especially when you don't have all all the things you need to make a good decision. And one of the things you said before the break, Rob, is um, the intent of the parent really makes a difference. So if the parent is choosing to put their kid in a pod for, for really appropriate developmental reasons, uh, it's okay. And if they're doing it to sort of give their kid a leg up or make sure that they don't fall behind, um, that's not okay. Is that Am I getting that right? Yeah. So for the person who thinks that this ledger, the moral algebra approach is the right way to decide by doing cost benefit, you'll immediately worry about what I just said about intent or the reasons because you'll think, well, you just make up an appropriate reason then and you get to do whatever you want. And um, here is the difference between this utilitarian or consequentialist way of thinking where only the outcomes matter or the consequences matter. And what I said before about reasons and motives mattering too. Here's what I have in mind about the parent. Um, sure, I can come up with some reasons to provide a certain type of educational experience for my kid. Let, let's say that um, in the absence of in-person instruction with a kid with some, some, some type of learning disability, they are going to genuinely lose um, um, almost all potential for academic progress because in a Zoom world, there's just no meaningful way to expect that they can engage. And so if the only way to allow my kid to have any possibility of, of learning anything is to hire someone in the backyard and I have the means to do so, that's a good reason to support the education of my kid. But as I said before, if you're doing it just because after 10 years of trying to get your kids ahead in the rat race to get into competitive university, you don't want to lose out on one year of additional advantage. That's not a good reason to educate your kid in the backyard. So we, then we have to worry about these background differences and circumstances and where the wealthy get advantages and the others don't. But that's not a task any one of us can surmount on our own. That's a task for social policy and politics more generally. And we also need to pay attention to that. I think that's a really nice point because I, I, I think as an individual who, who maybe your kid is not at one extreme or the other and you're kind of sort of smushy in the middle, it's, it's a hard decision to make. And I sort of liken it to uh, sort of climate change. Maybe this isn't fair. But, you know, there's some times where I have to do things like get on a plane to go somewhere and, and they've invented this thing called carbon offsets and it makes me feel a little bit better. Yes. I, I do a carbon offset. Yes. Um, what do you? Yeah, but okay. So yes to all of this, but I so want to emphasize here, Denise, that I think we should stop thinking about the universe of moral questions as beginning and ending with what I should do myself. Oh, I worry about climate change, so I'll, I'll buy some carbon offsets whenever I take a trip. We have to think collectively, because so many of these genuinely difficult moral problems, social problems in the world, we can only ever solve if we take a collective approach through policy. So anyone who thinks that being a vegetarian alone is going to solve the problem of factory farming is deluding themselves. You have to take political action. Same with the climate crisis, same with covid um, we can't think that on our own making the ethical decision for me is enough. We have to be, ha act in solidarity with other people, act collectively with others through social movements and through politics. So let, let's, let's choose one. Uh, should we force teachers to go back into classrooms, call them essential workers? Yeah, um, excellent question. And, and, and like, I, I want to feel some sympathy with the basic thrust of the idea that they're essential workers. Like if, if grocery store clerks and nurses and doctors are essential workers, then the task of educating children certainly seems essential as well. 
And it is worth questioning the priorities of our society when we've looked to open bars and restaurants and taken extraordinary measures to try to do that without seemingly taking extraordinary measures to open our schools. On the other hand, I'm also sympathetic to the views of teachers when they say, I might be in a, in a group that is um, at special risk and to go into an environment where I know that children are at lesser risk but are also gonna be asymptomatic transmitters without serious attention being paid to how it is that schools can be opening, there's a, a real risk there too. But, so once again, here I wanna say, um, I wanna focus on the collective decision-making. We have manifestly failed in the, in the United States to think about this from a policy and a social point of view we have just said to teachers or school principals at the most local level, you decide on your own for the best of the best of reasons you can offer. And that is a, a, an abject failure compared to other countries. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with Rob Risha, ethics professor, about these COVID-19 decisions. And I, I want to go back to this, you know, teachers in the classroom and the ethical decisions that a teacher makes. And they want to be there for their kids. A lot of the teachers I've been talking to, really, they miss their job. They love it. The morale of teachers right now is so low. And I do think it would be really different, to your point, Rob, if we said to them, we have done what we do for our medical workers. We're getting you PPE. We are get, We're changing out the filters. We're going to make sure that everything is as safe as possible. We're not going to open when the numbers are surging in your community. And I think the problem is our leaders are just not doing that. So you can't compare teachers to nurses and doctors when they're not getting the same kind of treatment. Absolutely. And, 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 and teachers are right to say that they didn't go into the profession with a calling expecting that they could be subjected to life-threatening um, viruses in the actual environment, whereas maybe nurses and doctors, you know, signed up for that in the beginning. I'm not so sure about grocery store clerks on that score yeah. either. In a historical context, uh, we're an incredibly uh, decentralized educational system. That's right. That's right. It's always been local. The science is ambiguous on what to do. So doesn't it make sense to leave it up to the local to make the decisions? Uh, education decisions, perhaps, but not when it comes to infectious diseases. I mean, you know, these are classic examples of things that have to be handled collectively. And the reason we worry about people who refuse to get vaccines is because, you know, thinking about the liberty of a person not to get vaccinated means that in the context of achieving herd immunity, um, other people are put systematically at risk. Right now in the United States, we are down to individual level decision making in a way that has undermined solidarity and undermined our collective well-being. I mean, to me, that's a call for education, right? That's a call for start when you're absolutely young with civic education all the way through K-12. I don't know. It's a call for better leaders. It's a call for fair elections. It's a call for so many things. It kind of blows your mind how we're going to turn this country around from where we are now and everything you see and all the name calling and, and, and things like that. Give us, give us a little bit of hope here, Rob. My prediction, but low confidence here, is that <laughs> when we emerge from the pandemic, maybe in a year optimistically, we will look back and recognize that digital technology and digital tools like Zoom that we're using right now to conduct this, this interview was the essential infrastructure of maintaining whatever modicum of work and personal connection we had during the pandemic. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your wise words. And thank all of you for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. 
If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app and anywhere you listen to podcasts. From the campus of Stanford University, this has been Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope on SiriusXM Business Radio. If you missed any of it, listen on demand, online or with the SiriusXM app.